You know, they had a problem. I remember as a young Christian, I would read through the Old Testament. I'd read through the law, first five books of the Bible. And sometimes I'd get frustrated with the, with the Jews because it seemed like, you know, God would do something great and they would soon forget and they were up to their antics and everything else. And, and I remember as a young Christian who hadn't been walking with the Lord very long, you know, you could have pride and you kind of felt, I kind of felt like, you know, I don't think I would be that lame. The longer I walk with Jesus, I'm so thankful for his grace because I'm very lame, you know, and we forget. And, and if we're not careful, we could go back to the old antics. But they, they, didn't, they didn't understand that, that the, the Passover was about to be fulfilled in their day. I love the way the writer of Hebrews, I believe it was the Apostle Paul, the way he reminds us, you know, so often we look back at things and we say, well, that was the reality, and now Jesus is the type. You, you got it backwards if you look at it that way. Jesus is the reality, and all those things that happen are the type. They're the shadow. He is the real deal. He is the reality of all of those things. He is the fulfillment of all of those things. You know, Christians do this with uh, the Lord's Supper. Next week, as we make our way through Mark, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper communion, and, uh, and, and many times Christians approach the Lord's Supper in the same way that the Jews would approach Passover. It's just a time to look back. Nope. We do look back. But according to Paul, we're supposed to look back, but also look within, right? You know what I'm referring to in 1 Corinthians? And it's not just looking back and looking within, it's looking forward. This is what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The point is, he's coming. So Passover was fulfilled when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world came and died and was buried and rose again the third day. The Passover was fulfilled. Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Listen, communion is not fulfilled yet. You can look back and say, Jesus accomplished. He, that's done. That's finished. It is finished. But it will not be fulfilled until the bride, the church, is with Jesus and we're all in one place. Jesus says that. Until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So, communion for us is not just looking back in remembrance. It's not just looking back at the coming of Jesus, it's looking ahead at the coming of Jesus. And we don't see it in our text, but I'm going to share it anyway. Here is another contrast. Guys, listen, if you're a Christian, you have the same spirit of God in you that every other believer has. If you're a Christian, you have the same word of God, hopefully. Hopefully you're not carrying around a Jehovah Witness Bible or something like that, but you have, you have the scriptures. You have the Holy Scriptures. You have the Holy Spirit within you. The Spirit of God wants you to know, wants you to understand the scriptures, and he teaches us. This is what 
one of his ministries is, to teach us. And he reminds us of things that we've already heard or read or studied. He wants us to know these things. And I believe that the Spirit of God wants us to have a happy expectation for what's coming. I believe that the Spirit of God wants us, his people, to be enthusiastically looking for the coming of the Lord because we're on the threshold of Jesus coming. And you're going to fall into one of two camps. And I wish I didn't have to say this, but it's true. I wish I could say, well, it's the non-believers. They have no interest in the coming of the Lord. But all of us believers, we all are looking with great expectation at the coming of the Lord, but I know it's not true. I know it's not true because I talk to Christians, and sometimes I am absolutely shocked that it's almost as if you brought up some offensive topic when you talk about the imminent return of Jesus for his church, almost as if that's bad news. It's almost as, you know, when I was a kid, remember you'd hear people say, you know, don't ever talk about religion or politics. I think there was a third one. I don't know what the third one was. I'm not really interested. But, but I think it's interesting that you would talk to someone who's born again, who has the same spirit within them, has the same word of God. They're able to study the scriptures. And you know that so much of the scripture is prophetic, meaning it speaks of things. Yes, some of the things have been fulfilled already, but there are many things that have not been fulfilled yet. Guys, I'm going to go on a tangent here. But look at what's happening in the world that we live in. Pipeline gets sabotaged, gets blown up, opening up, spewing out natural gas in the ocean. Who did it? Isn't that the talk? Who did it? The U.S., Russia, Putin did it. Someone else did it. I mean, just today, I heard, because you know Israel, little Israel, the little country is Israel that's smaller than the state of New Jersey or about the same size as the state of New Jersey, who happens to be in the Middle East, surrounded by nations that have oil, (laughs) and little Israel, for a long time, is that well, isn't that odd? Little Israel had no oil, had no gas, had, had w- w- they weren't blessed with that type of thing until recently. Well, you know what I mean by recently. Now all of Europe, where are they looking? They're no longer looking to Putin. That's been cut off for them. I mean, he was cutting it off anyway, as we know, but that's been cut off for them. And Israel has stepped in and said. We'll help you out, Europe. We could take care of you. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Do you know your Bible? Do you know what Ezekiel prophesied? That there's going to be hooks in the jaw of these nations. Russia, Iran, Turkey, Sudan. They're going to be brought into the Holy Land, to Israel, Are we watching the setup of the hooks being in the jaw? I believe that we are. We're watching the setup of Bible prophecy being fulfilled in our very day. It's a time to wake up. 
and to realize what's happening. And there should be great expectation. Don't be those who say, oh, you know, Jesus could come back in a thousand years. Because all that's saying is, I don't believe Jesus is coming back at all. And he's surely not going to come back in my lifetime. And if you believe that, then you'll continue to live your lukewarm existence. Because I've got time. I'll get it right when I get old. When I've sown my wild oats. Rather than living in that, that sense of today could be the day. This moment could be the moment that Jesus comes. It's not a frightening thing. It's a comforting thing. It's something that brings great comfort to the believer. So. Passover finds its fulfillment in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Lord's Supper finds its fulfillment in Jesus and his church altogether in one place. Now we move on, verse 3. And being in Bethany, so different location, at the house of Simon the leper. Do you think Simon was a leper any longer? I mean, he has guests at his house, and I think it's wonderful that he's referred to as Simon the leper. You know, there are some things that just stick, and uh, they're probably for a good thing. I, hi, I'm Simon. I was a leper. What do you mean you were a leper? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Simon the leper. As he, Jesus, sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why this fragrant oil, why was this fragrant oil wasted? I'm emphasizing that for a reason. Wasted, another contrast. This is how people see such things, as a waste. For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply, or they scolded her. That's what it means. They scolded her. I love it when people like to wax, you know, eloquent, you know, and, and uh, I'm so holy and I, you know, I, uh, we could have taken care of the poor. <laughs> really? Was that your concern? I mean, really? Was that your concern? You know? But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So now we have a different location, not Jerusalem, now over Bethany. We have this unnamed woman. The unnamed woman, well, Matthew doesn't tell us what her name is. Mark doesn't tell us what her name is. But John tells us what her name was. John tells us that it was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And chronologically, this anointing, which she probably was surprised when Jesus said, she has beforehand anointed my body for burial. She probably thought, what? I didn't know that that's what I was doing. Chronologically, this took place after Jesus raised her brother, who was dead for four days, from the dead. So I think that it's clear that 
that her motivation, the thing that was driving her to do this thing that she did with the fragrant oil was the gratitude in her heart. She was so thankful for what the Lord had done for her. She surely didn't understand you know, who he was, what his mission was, all of these different things. None of the disciples, apostles understood these things until after it happened. Remember, we've, we've noted that. We noticed that as you go through the gospel accounts. It seems as if even though Jesus very plainly, clearly told them what was going to happen, they would listen, but then they would just kind of move on to the next thing. It was almost like it was just too disturbing for them to think that Jesus would be taken, handed over to the Gentiles, killed, on the third day rise again. So this is Mary. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament, aren't there? This is Mary of Bethany. She's at the home of Simon, the leper. Jesus is there. She comes in. She has an alabaster flask, so I doubt that she carried that around with her. She probably brought it for, I mean, this was forethought. You know, she, she had a purpose for that, brought it with her. Maybe she heard, Jesus is back. Where is he? He's at Simon's house. She says, well, go ahead. I'll, I'll be right with you. I'll catch up with you. Maybe she dropped back to her house and, and she grabbed the flask of expensive oil. Do you know, guys, in the gospel accounts, we see Mary, this Mary, at the feet of Jesus on three different occasions. I love that about Mary at the feet. It's a place of humility. Luke tells us that she was at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach when her sister, Martha, was distracted with all of her serving, you know. And uh, remember, Martha was so upset, you know, Jesus, rebuke her, sent her into the kitchen to help me and, and all. But Mary was at the feet of Jesus, and, and Jesus didn't rebuke Mary. He said that she had chosen the better of the two at that moment in time. And then, of course, we see Mary at the feet of Jesus after her brother had died. She came and she fell at his feet. He delayed, remember? He says, Lazarus is sick. Lazarus sleeps, he told his disciples. And they thought he was talking about sleeping. They said, well, that's good, you know, a little sleep. It'll get better, you know. And No, 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 he's dead. So let's delay. What? Because he has a purpose for it. And Mary, when, when, when Mary finally meets up with Jesus, it says that she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. And then, of course, we see her here. We see her at the feet of Jesus. In fact, Mary, we're told in John's Gospel, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus. So there's a reference there. Mark tells us it was the head. No doubt it was the head and the feet. And wiped his feet with her hair. That's interesting. And I love this part in John's gospel. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. I love the fact that Mary's worship of Jesus affected everyone in the room. It affected some in a positive way, others in a negative way. And that's how it's going to be because the world is full of contrast. All of them were able to smell the fragrance of the oil. This was, if you will, the fruit of her worship. But not everyone appreciated it. 
So we see Mary, she's anointing, she anointed, past tense. The resurrection and the life before his death, burial, and resurrection. And we have another contrast. <laughs> we have a contrast between Mary, who's worshiping and giving and thanking. She's, she's showing her gratitude to Jesus. And then we have the mention of some who were indignant. The contrast between those who thought it was a waste to anoint Jesus with costly oil. What a waste. I remember when the church, Calvary Chapel Oak Harbor, first started. You know, we met in our home for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. And then we were able to rent a little space. Actually, it wasn't a little space. It was a huge space. It was too big. We couldn't even heat the thing. In Trader's Village on Midway, the big log building there. And we were in there for a time and then moved to another two facilities and then the Christian school and then eventually here. But I remember when we were in Trader's Village, um, you know, it was a little dinky church. We've, we've been up and down, probably more down than up. I don't think it has anything to do with the pastor. But um, that was a joke. Um, but you're not laughing because you probably say it probably has to do with the pastor. <laughs> But um, someone gave, a couple in the church gave the church $5,000. And I'll tell you, it, that, could, that was like, like $100,000 for us. I mean, it was just so much money. And it was like the opportunity to do outreach was just so large. And we just thought, this is so exciting. And I remember having a board meeting with the few guys who were on the board. And, and I said, you know, guys... We've got this money, and we want to use it wisely, and let's do an outreach. And uh, there's this group that will come up from Southern California. They were called Mission America, and they would go around the United States, and they would do outreach. They did skateboarding and, you know, music and, and testimony and all of these different things, and they came from Calvary Chapel Downey. And I said, let's, let's, let's have them up here, and, and it will be great, and da-da-da-da-da, and maybe we could reach. There were a lot of skaters at that time. Boaz, you would have appreciated that back in the day, you know, a lot of skaters. And I remember as we're sitting there, one of the board members said, well, I don't know about that. And I said, what do you mean you don't know about that? He said, I don't know if we want a church full of skaters and, you know, kids and stuff like that. I thought he was joking. I said, really? And he goes, yeah, you know, we have our families, and we just don't want, you know, riffraff coming in. And I thought, oh, man. Be still my heart and my mouth. And it wasn't. And I just, you know, and then another guy jumped on board. You know, well, we have this money, and maybe we should do this and do that. And I said, Guys, what are we about as a church? Are we about reaching the lost? Are we about sharing the gospel with people? I mean, is it, you know, does Jesus just go after, you know, good, wholesome people that don't ride boards with four wheels or whatever, you know? I mean, it was just so weird to me. And it was just this, this kind of pharisaic attitude that we don't want certain people in our church. They didn't last long. We, we replaced the board fairly quickly. Not all of them, but the ones that had to go, they went. Listen. There were those who were indignant. 
they thought it was a waste to anoint Jesus with the costly oil. Now, these men had been with Jesus for three years. They knew what he had done. They knew what he was doing. They heard his teaching. They believed he was Messiah, though they didn't really understand the mission of Messiah. And yet they're indignant. You're wasting this on Jesus? Now, John, thank you, John. John gives us insight that the others doesn't give us. John tells us that it was Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. That's interesting. Nate threw me a curveball right before we started second service, and he said, have you ever thought of, of Simon, Judas's father? Because it's Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. You ever think of what Simon that might have been? And I said, no, I don't. I said, wouldn't it be interesting? Now we're speculating because the scripture doesn't tell us that this is so. But I said, wouldn't it be interesting if Judas's dad was Simon the leper? That, boy, that would be interesting. If all of this happening in his father's house, maybe he felt a little emboldened to scold Mary for what she had done, this horrible act that she had performed, you know. Speculation. We don't know. I did go online, and some suggest that Iscariot was his mother, though men were never referred to as the son of a mother, and, and you know, uh, except for Jesus, you know, Mary. But even then, he was referred to as Joseph's son later on. And then Simon would be the father. Anyway, there's some homework for you. Get that figured out, you know. Anyway, there was a contrast between those who were indignant, Judas. Now, Mark tells us that there was more than just Judas, so I think that there were others that were chiming in because it sounded like the right thing to do. You know, let's sound holy, guys. Let's take care of the poor. And I love the way Jesus just puts it in perspective. You have the poor with you always. You want to go feed the poor? Go feed the poor. Do it tomorrow. Do it next week. Do it next year. You'll always have opportunity. But me, you will not always He's revealing something to them that was so, I mean, if they would have just stopped and, and even pondered those words of Jesus and said, no, no, wait, Jesus, before you go any further, please explain this to us once again that we might understand this, you know. It says that they were indignant. Do you know what the word indignant means? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it means angry. The word that's used here, the Greek word that's used here for indignant, our English word indignant, it literally means to be greatly afflicted. Are you following this? It's like Judas was hurt by Mary's actions. This hurt me. Now we're going to come back to that in a moment, why he felt hurt. But I want you to picture the scene. Guys, Mary, 
it was customary at that time. Someone comes to your house, you either have someone that will wash their feet or you at least provide a basin with water and a towel so that your guests can come in and wash their dirty feet as they come into your home. What was customary at that time is that you would take a dab of perfume and you would put it on their head. You would just anoint just a little bit their head. And so you could imagine kind of the smell of the nice perfume and the clean feet, and now I'm feeling at home. And I know that also culturally it means we're going to eat because you would never have anyone in your home if you weren't going to feed them. So that's the setting. That's what's going on. Mary comes in. She doesn't dab perfume on Jesus. She breaks the flax, uh, uh, the, the bottle, the box. She breaks it open, and she pours it on Jesus. She wasn't holding anything back. This, all of this goes on you, Lord. I'm not holding anything back. And she pours it on him. She doesn't, she doesn't open it up so that she could you know, use a little on Jesus and then close it up so she could have it later for something else. This was exuberant. This was all or nothing. I mean, this was, this was amazing. And the whole room takes on the fragrance of the perfume. And then you have Judas beginning to scold you. What are you doing, Mary? That's a waste. Don't you care about poor people? And I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I picture Mary dropping her head. Because she would have felt embarrassed. You know, her hair would have been wild with all this oil on her hair now because she's using her hair as a towel to anoint the feet and the head of Jesus. Her hair's all wild looking. And now you have grown men rebuking you for your act of worship. It'd be humiliating. And then Jesus steps in. I love Jesus. I love Jesus, our big brother. Don't take offense to that. But Jesus, our big brother. I was a big brother. You know, big brothers, big brothers take care of your siblings, even if you can't stand them. And no one can pick on your siblings but you. <laughs> big brothers take care of their own. And, and, I, and we see Jesus over and over and over again doing that. You know, the, the Pharisees, are, they're talking with his disciples, and Jesus comes up and says, what are, you, what are you talking about with them? He just kind of deals with it. He goes, you know, it's almost as if Jesus says, listen, if you've got a problem with them, you've got a problem with me. It's not like Jesus was going around fighting people, but he, he didn't let people be bullied. And neither should we, man, let people be bullied. And so... Jesus steps in and he commends her for what she had done. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, no doubt, and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. This is, this is mind-blowing. To me what motivated Judas to do this 
There's been many speculations. Some have even suggested that, that Judas, you know, he's really, he's just misunderstood, poor Judas, even though the Lord calls him the son of perdition. It would have been better if he's never born. But we know better. And we say, well, Jesus, actually, what he was trying to do, or what Judas was trying to do, he was trying to force the hand of Jesus to reveal his true identity. He thought that by, by doing this, by betraying Jesus, Jesus would then just break forth. His kingdom would come upon the earth and everything would be okay. I don't buy that for a moment. I don't buy that for a moment. Listen, don't take the opinion of man. Go back to the scriptures. Luke tells us, then Satan entered Judas. Oh, then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot who is numbered among the 12. It's almost like Luke is saying, I don't want you to think I'm talking about a different Judas here because there were different Judases. I'm talking about the Judas who was one of the apostles, who was with Jesus. He says, so he went his way and conferred with the chief priest and the captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in, an, in the absence of the multitude. Jesus knows all of this is happening. He's not unaware of this. In fact, remember that Jesus apparently, it's been a while since I've read it, but apparently he washes Judas's feet as he did the other. And it was as they were sitting at the table to eat that he said, one of you will betray me. And remember, none of the men suspected Judas. All of the men wondered if it might be themselves. There was humility in the room. John tells us, and this is kind of his commentary on, on uh, Judas. Of course, they didn't know this at the time, but John tells us that he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. I think that's wonderful. Jesus, he calls the twelve together. Let's see. There's not much. But Judas, why don't you take care of this? Yes, Lord. I'll take care of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, and he would pilfer. He would take money out of the box. So then you wonder, well, what well, we just saw, you know, they said that they would pay him money. They would agree to give him money. They, would ag they agreed to give him money. He must have been asking for money, right? We agree to give you money. Will you give me money? Yeah, we'll give you money. How much you want? 30 pieces. Why 30? <laughs> I don't think he stopped and said, because I'll be fulfilling Bible prophecy if I do 30. It was probably just a good number that sounded like the right amount to him. Paul told Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6.10. Was it the love of money that motivated Judas? Listen, 
it's not going to get easier to walk with Jesus. We need to settle this in our mind. I mean, we are deceiving ourselves if we think that it's just going to get easier and easier and easier. It's not going to get easier. It's going to become more complicated. It's going to become more difficult. You know, when Jesus speaking to the apostles and he told them that a time was coming when brother would betray brother and father his own son, his own children, and you kind of go, what? How could it ever be like that, you know? And, um, and yet, <laughs> it doesn't seem that far-fetched now. When you have people who profess to be Christians and they say, listen, we shouldn't question authority. We shouldn't question our government. Our government always has our best interest at heart. We need to take whatever they say as, as gospel, you know. And, and that's so hard for me to say without my tongue sticking in my cheek here. And, um, you know, and, and we are a great nation. I, you know, I went down this road at the first service. And there, there are some people that come. They're very political. And they... I could see the fire in their eyes when I say such things. And I think I say it on purpose because here's the thing. If you're trusting in the arm of flesh, you are a fool. If you're trusting in the arm of the flesh, if you do not see that our nation, the United States of America, that was blessed by God because of the values, the biblical Judeo-Christian values that we held to, to one degree or another. I mean, things have radically changed in my lifetime. Things have radically changed in three years' period of time. And, and we can so arrogantly say, we are a Christian nation. We are not a Christian nation. We are a post-Christian nation. Just as Europe, just as Great Britain, is a post-Christian nation. See, again, guys, we have this short-sightedness. We almost act as if everything began and ends with us because we're Americans. And we don't even have to look that far back in church history and to see how God blessed Great Britain. The great preachers of a few hundred years ago they weren't coming out of America. They were coming out of Great Britain. They were coming out of Europe. The great revivals that were taking place. God was blessing. They honored his word. They preached fervently. And God blessed. But then they began to apostate. Then they began to move away. And you go to the cathedrals, you go to the churches that have great reputations, past reputations, you go there, and they're no longer churches, they're mosques. What happened? The Bible says it. Jesus says, you've left your first love. Because you've left your first love, I will remove your lampstand from its place. Where's Jesus seen? Jesus is seen walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. What are the golden lampstands? The church. See, guys, we look at that and we say, Jesus didn't go anywhere. The church has departed. I mean, you know, and, and we're watching it today. And it's so troubling for those of us that believe in what the Bible teaches. It bothers me that I have 
I have 15 grandchildren. We'll have 15 grandchildren that are growing up in a world where you have adults that have an agenda to remove any semblance of of Christianity. They, They say religion, but they always come down to Christianity because that's the threat. Christianity from the minds of the children. That there are full-grown adults that will look at you straight-faced and they cannot answer a question what a woman is, what a man is. And we're supposed to accept it. And here's the problem. There are many professing Christians that are just nodding in approval like, okay, this is how the world is now. This is how we got to be. We don't want to shake things up. we got to be loving. What would Jesus do? I'm mocking because it's a mockery. And I'm telling you, it's not going to be easier to walk with Jesus. It's going to become harder to walk with Jesus. And I'm telling you, I will not be surprised when you have Christian professing Christian brothers and sisters saying, go after them. You know, they're those ones, and they're the ones that are believing this, and they're the ones. I'm telling you guys, when you have CNN uh, writing articles, having shows on the trauma of rapture, you know, those who believe in the rapture, how, it, how it's really creating a mental illness among people because people are living in fear that Jesus could come at any time. And as you read the article, you listen to the person. I just think, you know, anyone that would read this and not realize, you know, the person, everyone used to be a Christian, you know, but the person says, I lived in utter fear that perhaps I might have sinned and Jesus might come back in that moment, and I would be left behind. Where do you get that? Where in the world does it say in the Bible that if you've sinned, and Jesus happens to come at that moment, that you're left behind? We're not saved because we're sinless. We're saved because we're in Christ, because we placed our faith in Christ. We're trusting in Christ, see? But see, you listen to rhetoric like that, and people just say, yeah, 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 it's so dangerous, so dangerous, so dangerous. And we live in a time, and it's so disturbing, that we have Christians. Some of my family members have siblings that have grown up in the church. They've served in the church. You know, in our family, we, I have five children, and, and two of our in-laws, their fathers are pastors. And so they were PKs, pastor's kids. They grew up in the ministry. And watching some of their siblings, when you talk about the Lord coming, and it's almost as if you're bringing up a topic that's just a a sour note. We don't want to talk about such things. Something is seriously wrong. And the reason I'm so concerned about this is because if it happened to them, it could happen to you. It could happen to us if we're not doing our due diligence and studying the scriptures and abiding in the word of God. And I'm telling you, We, I believe we're the last generation of the church. And I believe that every generation of the church is responsible for that generation. I'm not responsible for my parents' generation. I didn't live then. I'm responsible for my generation to do what the Lord's called me to do, to share the gospel, to be light, to be salt, to do what the Lord has called me to do. And so are you. And I'm telling you guys, Jesus is coming. And we don't know what's going to happen. Jesus is coming. And we could either 
put our head in the sand and say, I don't want to hear what's happening. That's depressing. That's not why I've come to church. I've come to church to hear, you know, whatever. Or we could say, you know what? Uh, Look what's happening. Jesus told us about these things. You know, guys, do you think that Jesus, uh, I saw something horrible. I know I'm out of time. But I saw something horrible yesterday. I was looking at my uh, news thing on, on the phone. And it was a daycare a daycare, and this woman put this horrible Halloween mask on. Did you guys, some of you see that? And she's like, to little children. Could you imagine putting your kids in a daycare and you have some lunatic like that? And you wonder, well, I don't know why they're having nightmares tonight. Get them out of the daycare. Don't let anyone be in charge of your children. But to, to think of someone doing do you think that Jesus would tell us things to scare us? <laughs> you scared? It's going to get dark in the last day. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Brother's going to betray brother. <laughs> you know. No, he tells us these things because he loves us. So that we wouldn't be surprised. So we wouldn't think some foreign thing is happening. But we could say, you know, this is that which was spoken by the Lord. And I'll tell you, to live in the days in which we're living and not to be excited about the imminent return of Jesus is really wasting time. If we were all believing that Jesus could come back at any time, how might that affect our lives? So many Christians, I know I'm long, but so many Christians, men and women, are addicted to pornography. It is absolutely ruining your lives. You cannot think straight because of the pornography. You cannot escape it. It's not just when you're looking at the images. You have the images imprinted on your brain. It is affecting you in a negative way. It affects your relationship, your sexual relationship. The marriage bed is undefiled, but it's defiled because of what's in the mind, what's imprinted on the mind. This is the reality of which we live, guys. And I'm not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about people inside the church. This is a reality. But if I, if I, if I believe that Jesus could come back, you know, I believe that Jesus could come back the 45 years that I've been walking with Jesus. I haven't changed my opinion on it. I'm more certain that it's happening sooner now than it did, you know, 40 years or 45 years ago. But it has a purifying effect upon our lives. It's not this fear. I don't want to be doing that when Jesus comes back. It's more of, I only have one life to live. And it goes by so fast. And I want my life to count for eternity. And it's not a matter of salvation. Sadly, most of Christianity in America has been reduced to salvation. What can I do and still be saved? That's the wrong question. That's the question of someone that needs to question their salvation. Really? Because it's not what can I do. It's we sang it. We sing it. We change the words of songs that people write because it's not save me from my help. You guys come on up. It's save me from hell. And we know, and we do it on purpose, that even hell used in churches is offensive to people because we just don't want to believe it. But I'll tell you, 
it's seen in our it's seen in our lives what we believe. The apathy is seen in our lives. The way we carry ourselves, the way we talk, the way we, it, it's seen. And for those who are enthusiastic about these things, believe these things, what the scripture says, there is a joy, there is an excitement, there is a sense of urgency. Lord, there are people who are perishing. They need to be saved. You don't drive down the street and say, oh, those stupid skaters, you know, get out of the way. Or the homeless people, you say, oh, they need Jesus. Oh, Lord, help them. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. And it prompts us to share Jesus with people. Well, I'm done. And you could say, 